0: There are three basic types of Advent sermons. There are sermons about the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah, which are mainly from the Old Testament. There are sermons about the story of the Messiah's coming, which are mainly from the Gospels, primarily Matthew and Luke. And then there are sermons about the significance of the Messiah's coming, which derive mainly from the epistles. Well, the last two years, 2019 and 20, I preached on Matthew's nativity and Luke's nativity. So that base has been covered. This year, therefore, I'm going to go and talk about the anticipation of the Messiah's coming in the Old Testament. And we're going to spend four weeks in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of the clearest and most powerful of the messianic psalms, psalms that point forward to the Messiah. It's also one of the most quoted passages of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And it is the foundation and the starting point of many important biblical themes it seems to have been written by David. I won't go into details of why we think that. I, it's in the notes if you'd like to reference that on another occasion to, uh, for that. But we believe it was written by David. Also, Psalm 2, 1 through 3, which is the part that we're going to be focused on. We're going to take a little chunk each week and this morning, one verses 1 through 3. This is especially helpful in helping us to understand the world that we live in and why the world is the way it is you know it's easy to be sad about the world and frustrated with the state of the world but it's that way for a reason actually for many reasons and God has told us about many of those reasons and it's important for us to know those reasons so that we'll know how to adjust and how to react how to help which we can't do if we don't understand how things are this way so each week I'm going to read the entire psalm it's only 12 verses long but again we'll be focusing on this morning just the first three verses why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in the first three verses here, there are five things that I'd like to bring out to us. Number one, the peoples of the earth are enraged against God. Number two, the people of the earth perceive God's authority and law as bondage. Third, the people of the earth work together to plot how to escape from God's authority and law. Fourth, this rage of the nations against God includes God's Messiah. And finally, fifth, this rage against God and his Messiah is irrational. Okay, so let's go through these five. First, the peoples of the earth are enraged against God. That is plain here. Verses two and three speak of kings and rulers, but it's clear that this rebelliousness is not confined to the leaders of the nations, for it is the nations which rage and the peoples who plot in vain. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The people are not just impatient with God, they're not just irritated, they're against God. They plot against him, they set themselves against him, the passage tells us. The strange thing about this is that most of the people who the psalmist is talking about raging against God, most of those people are very religious most are very religious religion can be a great way to oppose God and his Messiah you see when you worship a God who isn't the true God then by doing so you're actually opposing the true God when you choose which God to worship based on your preferences you're opposing the true God the passage says that people rage at God and set themselves against the Lord but it doesn't say that they oppose the concept of God people don't hate the concept of God in fact they love it they just hate God they're fully capable of loving a God if they get to invent him or at least adjust him according to their preferences but of course in that case we are God's potter and he has become our clay instead of the other way around and another way to oppose God that might surprise us is to avoid sin to be a good person You see, if you're really, if you're a really good person, then you have no need for God. Now, of course, we know that there are no really good people, for we're all sinners. But there are plenty of people who think they're really good people. And by acting in such a way that helps them feel like they're really good people, they can oppose God. But... Romans 8, 7 tells us that the mind that is set on the flesh, that is the mind that is the way it is before God acts upon it, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, just like Psalm 2 says, for it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. The second point is that the people of the earth perceive God's authority and law as bondage. You can see this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against its anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is why they're angry. They feel like they've, they're tied up. They feel like they're In bonds. People don't experience their rebellion as rebellion usually, but they experience it actually as a desire for liberty. They find God constraining, they don't want Him to forbid them to do something or command them to do something else it makes them feel boxed in so people feel tied down and are eager to escape I am my own I want to get rid of this yoke in their minds they're not doing something evil they're escaping a tyrant the God whose yoke is easy is perceived as a tyrant And God's cords of kindness, which is a quote from Hosea 11.4. God's cords of kindness are perceived as cords of bondage. And his bands of love are the shackles of slavery in their perception. It reminds us of Satan in the garden. Who convinces Adam and Eve that the one who has generously given them all things to enjoy, except for the fruit of one tree, is actually a cruel tyrant who is depriving them. But, of course, we know Satan is the true tyrant here. And our society, or Satan through our society, would have us believe that true happiness comes from personal freedom. In other words, true happiness is when you do what you want to do, not what someone else wants you to do. We want to make up our own rules. We don't want to be told who to sleep with. We don't want to be assigned a gender. We want to decide who we are and why we're here. We want to decide who to worship or not worship anyone at all. It's like Jeremiah 2.20 where God says to his people, Israel, long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. I set you free. But you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. He freed them, but they perceived it as bondage. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. The third principle, the people of the earth work together to plot how to escape from God's authority and law. You see this, verse 1, the people's plot in vain. Verse 2, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is a team effort, a conspiracy they are strategizing together, hatching a plan of how to escape from the authority of God. They're not content just to take a stand against God individually. There's a social side to this rebellion. Like it says in Romans 1.32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to others who practice them. So they're in this together, they're cheering one another on. They're working together in this rebellion. People who usually don't get along in other circumstances suddenly are united together by their common rage against God. As Luke 23.12 tells us, about the day that Jesus was crucified. It says, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. But now they had a common enemy, and that brought them together. Now they were friends. We see here the, the human ingenuity, the massive human effort and the cooperation with others which goes into this human project of conspiring against God constructing arguments that justify people's rebellion of God and their rejection of him people devote everything to this cause anything to justify their rebellion Science is a wonderful thing until it gets used to raise arguments against the truth of God. History is a wonderful thing until it gets used to undermine the truth of God. You think the theory of evolution was a result of a pure objective scientific exploration? Of course not. The problem is there isn't one person on earth who doesn't have a vested interest when it comes to the question of God's existence and God's nature and God's law. So when a few historians say, Jesus Christ probably never existed, it sounds impressive. It sounds like this is the result of a great amount of scholarly historical study. But the fact is, they can't be trusted because they have a vested interest. And they, just like all of us, they don't keep their personal interests and convictions apart from their study. When scholars say, Paul didn't write these epistles, or these miracles clearly never happened, we have to take this with a grain of salt because, once again, there's a vested interest. You see, all these things are part of a giant conspiracy to suppress the knowledge of God in order to be able to rebel against him without being plagued by feelings of shame and guilt. The fourth principle, this rage of the nations against God includes God's Messiah. Messiah. This rage of the nations against God includes God's Messiah. Though this Psalm talks more about the Messiah than virtually any other psalm, it doesn't actually say much about him in the first three verses. It just mentions him in verse three. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, i sorry, that's verse 2, and I misread that. That's verse 2. So, when, they, when the psalmist here refers to his anointed, that, in the, that is the Hebrew word Messiah. The anointed is the translation of it. Messiah is the transliteration of it. And the Greek word for that is Christ, Christos. So those three all mean the same thing the Hebrew word which came to be used to refer to this person promised by God who, would be, who had come to the earth as king, as priest, and as prophet, was Messiah. And here in Psalm 2, it's used repeatedly. Now think for a minute about, you know, we all know something about prophecies of the Old Testament that point forward to the coming of Christ but you know one thing we don't do very much is think about the progress the story of how those unfolded you know right in the garden of Eden there was one where the Lord said I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman between the serpent's offspring and the woman's he will bruise uh, Satan's head but you Satan will bruise his heel and this was is called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, the first time that this promise of the coming of Christ is spoken. But it's sort of ambiguous, and it's just once, and then there's not no more elaboration on it. And then, you know, when Abraham comes along, and God says, all nations will be blessed through you, that's also a reference to the coming of Christ. But, Again, it's very ambiguous, and there's no explanation that's attached to it. And that was a long time after the creation, of course. And then, you know, when the Israelites are in the wilderness, they uh, this uh, they hear this prophecy from from uh, Balaam, and uh, it says in numbers twenty four seventeen, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, which is a symbol of a king, shall rise out of Israel. Again, it's clearly talking about the coming of Christ, but at the time, it's so little information and no explanation, so it's just doesn't give you a whole lot to stand on, although there's a building anticipation that there's something, someone who's coming. And then there's the day of Moses, you know, right before he goes up to Mount Pisgah and and dies, he says in Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So, you know, that's pretty much all that's happened. Those prophecies, those few little ambiguous prophecies are pretty much all that happens until David becomes king. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's almost like you've gone through your life and, uh, you know, you've seen four shooting stars. And, you know, everyone was sort of a thrill. You see a shooting star, but it's gone so fast, and it's like, wow, that was really cool. But then, all of a sudden, there's a fireworks display. You go down to the National Mall, and you see a fireworks display, and it's like, wow, that was amazing, one after another on top of it. And that's the way it was when David came along. There's so many different things that were said all around that same time. And Psalm 2 was part of this giant display of messianic prophecy that occurred at this time with regard to David's son that was promised. We'll get into this more in future weeks. So in Psalm 2, a thousand years before Christ and 300 years before the prophet Isaiah, who really built on those promises to David and and gave many more prophecies about the coming but 300 years after this psalm we're we're reading these statements about the Messiah in fact it's fair to say that Psalm 2 really ignited the messianic expectation because Psalm 2 is really what brings together all the expectation of the uh, of a promised deliverer king under the word messiah this is where messiah came to be come the focus of all these expectations in psalm 2 but the focus of this verse verse 3 is not on I mean verse 2 is not on the Messiah's coming, but on the opposition the Messiah would face. And we see this very clearly, even in the story of when he did come, don't we? We see it in the brutal reaction of King Herod when he found out from the wise, from the Magi that, you know, that, that this one who was promised was had been born, and how he reacted to try to wipe, to try to oppose and and murder this one, even by killing innocent children to do so. And you know, we think that just what a a primitive, ugly kind of person he was, but Herod was actually a man who was ahead of his time. He understood, he was astute, he understood things that others didn't understand. Others who later you know, rallied against Jesus. They didn't get it at this point, but Herod did. And then later, after the crucifixion, in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John are explaining the crucifixion of Jesus, lo and behold, what do they use to, uh, to de- explain exp- the crucifixion, they use the first three verses of Psalm 2, the very verses we've just read this morning. Listen to it. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven, this is verse 24 to 28 of Acts 4. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit Why did the nation's rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, now he's quoted Psalm 2 and now he's elaborating, he's applying, he's explaining the quote of Psalm 2. He says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus... Whom you anointed, referring to the anointing in it was referred to in Psalm two, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So this Psalm is not only about the Messiah; it's about what happened at the cross. But again, why would they oppose the the Messiah? Why would they oppose this anointed one? The very one God sends for healing and for deliverance. Why would there be such a reaction as this? That's anticipated in Psalm 2 and, and, and we see manifested in the actual story. Well... The Psalm 2 begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Well, this why that begins verse 1 is really like an umbrella that covers all three of these verses. All of them are asking the why question. One translator actually. Uh, puts the why at the beginning of each of the verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves? Why do the rulers take counsel together, etc., etc.? So what's the significance of this why? Why does the Psalm begin with a why? Why is this question asked? Well, the why is the author's astonishment at the senseless rejection of God's rule and God's ruler the Messiah why would they do this he's feeling it doesn't make sense the fact that we the fact is we desperately need a king we need a wise gracious compassionate intelligent powerful King Who is impervious to corruption. You know, great literature often has contained stories of a wise and a good king under whose reign the people prosper. And that's very strange in light of the fact that almost every king that comes along is oppressive and corrupt. And yet there's this hunger for a king that does it right, that doesn't just live to f- fill his own pockets, but serves the people in wisdom and goodness. The rebellion of man. You know, when, when, the ac- when an actual king shows up who is wise and benevolent and compassionate and powerful and impervious to corruption, what happened? He was rejected and more than rejected. He was crucified. This rebellion that we're talking about is not because there's some deficiency in the king. It's a problem with how people see things. We have a good king, a perfect king, but we hate this king. So what's our beef with God? What bothers us about him? Why is he so hated? Well, first of all, he insists on being God which is what you'd expect, right? He is God. And second of all, he tells us what to do. He forbids us from doing things he knows will harm us. What a terrible thing. He forbids us from doing things he knows will harm us. Now we see this in everyday life. Let me give you an illustration that I've used before. I have a niece named Jenna she is a wonderful sweet and godly woman but when she was about 11 months old she was crawling on the carpet when she discovered a straight pin and clutched it in her hand thankfully her parents were watching and they were able to intervene before Jenna was able to do what 11-month-olds love to do with things they found, find on the floor, and that's put it in their mouths. But Jenna was not at all happy about being thwarted. She clung to the pin with all of her might, and screamed as if she were being murdered. She was so mad that if she had had access to a gun and had the strength and the intelligence to be able to shoot, she would have killed both of her parents right then and there. Were her parents being unreasonable? Were her parents being tyrannical? Were her parents being selfish? Wanting this little treasure for themselves and not wanting to share it with her? Of course not. But at that moment, Jenna wanted to do what Jenna wanted to do. And Jenna hated them for standing in her way. And that's the way it is for us with the Lord. That's why we hate the Lord. Usually when there's a conflict between two parties, both parties bear some responsibility. But that's not the case in the conflict between God and the peoples of the earth. God is perfect. He has done nothing wrong. He has been nothing but good. And yet mankind hates him. Now, we understand why people would rebel against a tyrant. Even most Christians who believe in honoring the emperor as the New Testament commands us agree that there's a time to revolt against tyrants. Most Christians, for instance, celebrate Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor in Germany who actually plotted to assassinate Adolf Hitler. But this revolt that we're talking about against God is completely nonsensical. It's not a revolt against a tyrant. It's not even against a very imperfect parent. It's a revolt against a generous, good-hearted, benevolent king. He came healing the sick, freeing people from demon possession making people, making blind people able to see, lame people able to walk, condemning oppression, even raising dead people back to life. And yet they still hated him. Jesus said something about this in John 15. He said, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, talking about his miracles, they would not be guilty of sin. In other words, the thing that makes them really guilty is that they saw the wonders of what he did. They saw the wonders of his love, and yet they still rebelled against him. But now they have seen, they have both seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. It's irrational. It doesn't make sense. And brothers and sisters, this is us. There's something wrong with us. There's something twisted in our hearts as human beings. We get it all wrong. This is way beyond lostness. This is way beyond sickness. It's not just doing bad things. We stand against the Lord and against His Messiah. We hate the very thing we ought to love. We're offered to drink from the fountain of living waters but instead we drink from the raw sewage in the ditch. In my heart, there is a treason, one that poisons all my love, as we sing to the words of Eric Grover. We don't like someone else telling us what to do. We want to be our own God. That's what sinfulness is at its root. That's where it begins. But you know what's amazing in light of all this? God's grace is amazing in light of this. John 3.16 is amazing in light of this. God so loved the world. That He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's amazing. Romans 5.8 is amazing in light of this. Or 5.10. While we were His enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. That's amazing in light of who we are. God loved us when we were defiant rebels. And he sent us his Messiah to be born as a human baby, to live a perfect life of love, and then to die the death of a criminal in our place. You know, that's what rebels deserve, you know. They deserve to be crucified in shame and disgrace. But instead of crucifying us, the Messiah let us crucify him instead. In our place. He is so good. He is so kind. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, Forgive us that we don't love you as you deserve to be loved. Lord, we give you glory for the love that we do have for you, for we know that that is not of our flesh, but is a gift from you. But Lord, we know that our love for you is still so small compared to what it should be, compared to what you deserve. We pray that you would help us to love you more, help us to delight in you more, to enjoy you more. Give us eyes to see all the kindnesses and the benefits that we enjoy because you have set your love upon us. And dear Lord, for any here this morning who really don't love you, who may pretend to love you or may even think that they love you, but don't, we pray that you would be at work in them, that you would open their eyes to their own hardness of heart toward you, their own enmity toward you, And you, O Lord, would, would win them and soften them and take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And now, Lord, as we come to the table where we remember what Christ endured for us, we thank you that you didn't allow us to go through the torment that we deserved. But you rescued us by experiencing the torment of the cross. Please, O oh Lord, help us to cherish these precious gifts which symbolize your Love and your sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.